This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. We've had a weekend to digest the horrifying details in the report of the Independent Commission into Long-Term Care in Ontario. There is troubling testimony from family members detailing neglect of their loved ones. One from the daughter of a former nurse who talked about how her mother was left to lie in soiled diapers without even a blanket to cover her with her hand up trying to get someone's attention. The report is especially hard on the chief medical officer, David Williams, and as to the long-term care minister, Marilee Fullerton. Well, the report acknowledges that she foresaw the deadly consequences, but acted like a good soldier following orders when she was overruled. She kept asking in her media appearance this morning, why is it taking so long to address? Who is she asking this of? She is the person in charge of addressing this. Uh, We know that the problems do, in fact, pertain this government, but this government, uh, to quote Jane Meadus, the advocacy, the institutional advocate for the elderly, poured gasoline on the flames. Uh, The minister also kept referring to collective responsibility. Who's the collective? You know, I'm about to talk to CARP, and it has been sounding the alarm since long before the pandemic, and I have been reporting on it since long before the pandemic. So how do we share blame with a government that cut back on inspections and failed to put in the necessary staff and infection control measures even after the first wave to prepare for the second? They didn't do that either. What do you think? 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now let's go to the Zoomer squad. David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Hey, guys. Good morning, Libby. Good afternoon, Libby. Okay. Uh, Wow. David. Yeah. uh, So... uh, I saw your written comments on the weekend, and now presumably you've had a chance to watch the minister's response. What do you think? Well, it's obvious that her her strategy and her marching orders is to lean heavily on the first half of the report because they, it is true. They can say that many years of neglect, many governments, uh, regimes in the past didn't do this, didn't do that. It's even worse than we thought. There are specifics in here that are even more horrifying than we knew about as to the past. So she's completely within her rights to, to mention that and that that's her strategy. Part two, okay, but what did you do when this happened? Uh, she doesn't want to go near, <clears throat> excuse me. And that's also understandable because the record is very dreadful. The report, I think back, Libby, to all the months we've been talking about this and what was really going on at that time is even worse than we imagined from this report. Bill. Uh, She certainly looked uh, very emotional, very, very tired. Uh, You can see uh, the bags under her eyes, obviously, yeah. And, and only uh, answering four questions, speaking for 22 minutes, and then she then she walked uh, she walked off. It was a very unimpressive uh, presentation, and certainly did not answer the questions that we thought, given the two days they had since the report, uh, almost three days since the report was was released to them. You would have thought she would have had anything more specific than to be able to say that later this week there'll be some more announcements about improving the uh, the living conditions, the care of our loved ones in, in long-term uh, care. I don't think it did anything today to uh, uh, to raise confidence 
in anybody who watched. You know, uh, I'm not a psychologist, David, but really just to watch her, I'm thinking, you know, this woman thinks that there's no response. Well, she keeps saying I take responsibility for their well-being, but she doesn't think any of this is her government's fault. Well, I think it. I think she doesn't think it's her government's fault because she's cornered and she has to. She does have a lot of ammunition in saying they should have done this, they should have done that before. But there's something that's really important here. When they set up the Ministry of Long-Term Care, we are learning through this report. It was, I think, just optics. I think it was a sidebar ministry all along. They never had any. They weren't even at the table. We have these famous tables, the science table, the policy table. They weren't even at the table till a, uh, several weeks into COVID. And throughout uh, this report, you see examples of an email they sent here asking the Minister of Health, please include us in your communication strategy. Why didn't you check with us about this? They, nobody paid any attention to them at the beginning. The government and the Ministry of Health was obsessed with the hospitals only. That's where the problem was going to be. Nobody paid any attention. And I think her biggest failing was she didn't either have the clout or the, whether it's the personality or the clout or the manpower to make her uh, portfolio important enough at the beginning. So they all bypassed her. And she could, other than standing up once and refusing to do a video saying that the risk was low, because she thought it was high, with to her credit, she didn't do that video that they asked her to do. The rest of the time, she was a voice that was unheard, and I think that's the biggest failing. At the very, very beginning, she didn't make her constituency important enough uh, in the powers that be in the healthcare system. Well, that's you know, right. David, I mean, David, she acknowledged, I don't know if acknowledge is the right word, she confirmed that at the beginning... They did what they are doing again now, which is moving more people from hospitals into long-term care, even though long-term care is is not in a position to handle them. Exactly. They they never got well, over know. their obsession with that. And then Williams, who really, he's the one individual, I think, that gets the most scathing treatment in the report. He never believed in community spread and an asymptomatic infection risk, which she did believe, and he didn't, until practically the summer, the first summer. He kept on saying, no, no, no. And Yaffe, his assistant, who was also criticized in the report, no, 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 it's not going to happen that way, and yet it did. Uh, So, uh, I mean, what is the upshot of the report in terms of, I mean, you're just saying that that um, the chief medical officer was singled out for very harsh analysis and the government, I mean, uh, is, is anything going to come of that, you think, Bill? Well, certainly we, we hope it, it will, but there's been no, no evidence that uh, they've been willing to move forward uh, so far. There were you know, there were uh, 80 some, 84, I think, recommendations in the uh, uh, in the commission report. But and, and four of them uh, are really important ones to uh, uh, to our CARP members. And and the one that uh, Fuller hardly mentioned, just slightly referred to at the beginning of her statement today, was improving infection uh, control and and uh, and prevention. And for them to admit openly that they had destroyed uh, PPE equipment, that they didn't have uh, a system for uh, for putting good infection control uh, in into uh, place, and and Fullerton's response today didn't address this major uh, problem uh, at all. That they were that nothing about standardizing or or prioritizing uh, uh, PPE in, in long term. Uh, care and to, to, to have missed uh, even mentioning that today uh, makes us really worried of what, whether they really will do anything about it. Well, she did sort of mention it, but David, we all know that between the first and the second waves in Quebec, they made sure that there was an infection control officer in every home. They made sure of that and they were recommended to do that in April to start assigning because it, uh, we were shocked to find out that 
Many of the homes had no training, nobody, even the medical directors of these homes are not required to know anything about the specialty of how to institute infection prevention and control. That tends to be better done, of course, at the hospitals. And they recommended back in April to set up a, a spoken hub where each home would get training from the local hospitals. It took them nine months to implement that. And that was mentioned in the report. Why did it take you so long even after you were told to? I think that there's a serious organizational issue where I don't know whether they have the means to execute. It's fine for her to say um, he recommended these 84 things and we agree with them as if the only problem was whether you agree with the recommendation or not. My fear is can they execute it even if they want to? There's so much organizational chaos in there that we learned from this report that I really worry about whether they've got the horses to, to fulfill this, even if they want to. Well, it's, you know, David's right. Uh, she, she claims, and she said herself, you know, she came into politics to fix long-term care, but then she talked about things. I've got quote, slow moving government for uh, bureaucracy is a reason she couldn't change, you know, or she said, we must understand our processes. She sounded like she was powerless, but, as David said, as long-term care minister, she was she's powerless to make anything happen. She, uh, and, you know, she she's a doctor. She's a medical doctor, and doctors are are trained to say this is your problem. This is what you should do now. Go and do it. And and I said she's totally frustrated that she can't put the actions in that she knows are necessary. Well, I I don't understand. You know, in a situation like that, particularly someone she's a doctor, like she'll be able to put food on the table, presumably, if, if, if this is what you run into, you make a big fuss. That's uh, why people resign. Let's take a call That's from Pat. Let's take a call from Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Hi, Libby. I think it's, you, there's some very interesting comments here. Um, the, I think people are missing. There's a difference between governance and management. And obviously, she came into government... She can't change the management. I mean, there's a structure. And, you know, I, I realize it frustrates people, but they have to understand that. And you don't necessarily get the best people working in government. And I think that's what's been shown here. And, you know, I feel very sorry for the lady. Probably what she should have done, is, if she felt strongly about it, is resigned and left to say, look, at this thing's out of control. But otherwise, she's dealing with weak people below her. She's dealing with no money. You know, I mean, money is short. And, you know, I mean, we talk about fixing this. We can fix it, but it's going to cost a lot of money. And who's going to pay? That's that's the big issue. But I, I, I think everybody's missing the difference between governance, management, the, and the separation uh, that the person is in when you're when you're an elected official. Okay, Pat. Uh, yeah, again, I mean, uh, what's coming to mind? The person coming to mind is Jane Philpott. Well, that's right. Who who resigned? Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, I think, but I think Pat's right. I think the caller's right that that it, at what point though are the taxpayers entitled to say, "Look, we need outcomes here"? This was a case where the outcomes were disastrous. It cost human lives. And he's right about management. The best example, real quick, earlier in the report, in the report, they said that the government actually had a four-year plan called the Resilience and Ready Ready Healthcare, where they identified pre-COVID. This straddles Wynn and Ford. The civil servants identified that in the event of any emergency, the system was too fragmented and too disorganized. We better figure out how to coordinate this in case there's ever an emergency. They had a written intent to do that. It took them four years to do it. And the commission asks Helen Angus, the deputy minister of health, and Christine Elliott, the minister of health, it asks them, why did you waste four years of all this work and never implement this plan? No answer. No, no answer. No, no answer. So even when they were doing something, when they saw what was going to happen, they couldn't do it or didn't do it. Uh they they seem to have an idea for reorganizing the way long-term care is done in the province. What do you think of that, David? 
Well, I think um, Commissioner Morocco, they had a very interesting idea that said separate out. He he did deal with this whole public-private thing. And he said separate out the building of the buildings from the management. The same way you hire private companies to build courthouses or even hospitals, and you pay them a fee that gives them a return on their investment as the builder, but then the people managing it, are managing with a service in mind and not an ROI, return on investment in mind. And it was a very interesting idea, and she did allude to it briefly this morning. Fullerton is something they were they were looking into, and they'd had a positive response. It would be a, a, an interesting way of, you know, increasing the capacity, taking advantage of private capital, but not having, um, you know, profit motive in the management of the facility. Well, and you know, it's interesting, David and, and Bill, because when I asked nursing home operators or stakeholders about uh, the business of, of public versus private, the one thing they say is that if you go public, there will never be another facility built. So it seems like this type of a model could address that, Bill. Yes, it, it could. This uh, model... Uh in some places it's called the uh, P3 uh, model, has worked in other uh, industries and is certainly worth looking at in, in this case uh, if we really think that the, that the operation can be uh, supervised, monitored, and done uh, better than it's being now. Building the uh, facility uh, will still give us the, the issues around uh, uh, running the organization and running it properly. Uh, and, you know, it's it's interesting, David, at the same time, just before this was released, uh, Mayor John Tory was talking about a report on the 10 municipally run homes, which did a lot better. And he talked about extra investments in the homes to deal with it. And, and in the second breath, he talked about whatever deficits or overruns or whatever they experienced. So, you know, part of it is the willingness, but it's, it's a money issue. It is a money issue, but I think it also goes back to an organizational issue. Do you have a coherent point of view and strategy for what this sector even looks like? What it's going to take, who is in it, uh, who, uh, who uh, ages in place, uh, what new techniques are to run the system better. We could do a whole show on this at some point because the Morocco Commission did have several pages about the butterfly system and different ways of providing better care within these homes and the need for some innovative thinking. It really touched on a lot of areas. But you need to have a, a, a commitment, and I think, unfortunately for Fullerton, and unfortunately, devastatingly for the seniors that were in these homes, this was an afterthought. This was an optics, let's spin off the ministry to show how much we care, but then when the you-know-what hits the fan, they're not at the table. The Ministry of Health is calling the shots. The Chief Public Health Officer is calling the shots, and Long-Term Care Ministry is too weak to uh, really be taken seriously until it's a massive disaster, at which point they have no choice. And we see what happens as a result of that. Do you think, either of you, that... that um, how do you think the government is taking this? I mean, the strategy... I mean, I at one point I heard the minister, Marilee Fullerton, talking about the narrative that's coming out. Uh, and again, sticking to uh, the fact that these are long-term problems, but but surely, surely they understand that you know they are going to wear some of this. I mean, they've got to, I think. Well, you would you would you would think that they uh, would, but you know, uh, and, and coming back and, and relating that to uh, uh, the the caller statement, the difference between who sets the policy and who's actually managing. Uh, the Auditor General's report uh, uh, recommended that the Ministry of Long-Term Care uh, uh, include hiring criteria for the ministry. In other words, strongly suggesting that there wasn't good staff being hired for the for the ministry. And uh, the response uh, from from the government was hiring decisions are for senior executives. Uh, come under the the government uh, leadership. In other words, you can't do anything. Uh, you can't do anything uh, about it. That's not uh, that's not your area. Well, they're not willing 
to hire managers who can make the kinds of decisions that we're talking about, the kind of changes that even the minister uh, was talking about, then it, it shows to me the government really doesn't have uh, confidence or willingness to make these uh, changes and follow through on these recommendations. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Helen in Toronto. Hello, Helen. Hi, Libby. Uh, I'm terrified that by putting people into the homes that have not been tested and might be carrying COVID, that what went on in my mother's home, and thank God she's still alive, uh, is going to happen again. That they are putting these people at risk by putting people in. Well, yeah, what, what I took from that decision, which came last week, was that they will make, quote, every effort to make sure that people transferred into uh, nursing homes are vaccinated. But that's not a guarantee. And in a lot of these homes have significant percentages of staff who are not vaccinated by their own choice. David? Well, it's true. And I think that the caller is right to be worried because um, make every effort. I mean, that that reminds me of the, another thing, going back to the commission report, the infamous directive number three, where the chief medical officer decreed that staff should only work at one home wherever practicable, wherever possible, quote unquote. And that wording was self-defeating, according to the commission. It was vague. It was contradictory. Nobody followed it anyway. And uh, this is looks like another example, you know, wherever will make every effort. What does that even mean? I mean, don't you know if someone's been vaccinated and they either have or they haven't, they've got their little slip that they've been vaccinated or they don't. How can you move them into a long-term care home uh, if you don't know that they're a, you know, don't have COVID right now and B that they've been protected. So um, this is just another example though, of how they're using, they may be using the long-term care homes as a, as an overflow for the hospital system, well, they which is definitely, why the problem called first place. They, they definitely are, and that was their strategy that led to the first wave. I mean, exactly. Uh, it's interesting. There, there's also this whole aspect about, you know, you were talking that long-term care wasn't even at the table of integrating it into the healthcare system, and I think the idea is that that actually will happen with these Ontario health teams. But I also think that it's it's happening uh, to a greater extent in some areas than in others. I mean, in terms of infection control, I know that University Health Network in downtown Toronto was very effective in helping some long-term care homes with that, but other areas, not so much. It was very, it was very decentralized. Pardon? My feeling is that political speak for, yeah, maybe. Okay, thanks for your call, Helen. Yes, true. Um, so do you do you see a change in that, at least with the advent of these health teams? Well, the, the report, one of the recommendations uh, in the uh, commission's report was that long-term care homes must have an established relationship with the broader health care system, particularly hospitals. I mean, they identified that as being a, a huge issue, that there's not a solid relationship between the local hospital and the local long-term care uh, facility. And that's one of the reasons that they said uh, that we have, have the problems. And so exactly what you were talking about. They also said that the long-term care homes must have... Uh, must pass an inspection on IPAC and post the results and post its IPAC readiness and strategy or, you know, facts and figures about what it's doing on, on IPAC uh, on its website so that it's available to be scrutinized at all times. Um, on a good news, I suppose, part of this, there are examples throughout the healthcare system. And the report, by the way, was just lavish and rightly so in praising the healthcare workers, the poor people that were stuck with this mess. But there were also some examples of local public health officers not waiting for the ministry, not waiting for the head offices that were, but going out and doing things on their own. Kingston, for example, um, he checked in with uh, news about what was going on in China and overseas 
and had his own food inspectors go into long-term care homes to make sure that their infection uh, prevention was was up to scratch. He didn't wait for the the quote-unquote head office. So there are examples. If uh, she wants to learn from what went right, there are examples throughout the system of people who who really took strong positive action. And I, I got some consolation from that, even though the the main the head office was terrible. Uh, out in the field, there were many examples of really strong, effective action being taken. Well, and, and then there's this whole business about inspection. We know the Ford government uh, canceled the the regular inspections, only responded to complaints during the first wave. People called in their inspections, which boggles my mind. And there's no enforcement, even, even if there are violations cited. Uh, what does the report have to say about that? Well, the law, it said that, uh, that the long-term care inspection enforcement regime did not adequately address long-standing compliance issues. A clear and consistent, a clear and consistent applied monitored and enforced regime. And the, and the minister spoke about that day in her press conference. She promised change, but no specifics. And it sounded like no immediate action was currently underway. This was just something she was agreeing should be done in the future. And, and before you even get that started, it should be done now. They, they don't even have any, they don't even have close to enough inspectors who are trained in what to look for. There were inspectors that testified to this commission that said we're only allowed to go in there in response to a complaint. We're only allowed to look at that exact complaint. And we don't even know how to evaluate because you need special training, specialized training in, in, in how to evaluate uh, what you're seeing in terms of infection prevention and control. And I think they have three inspectors in the entire system that are trained in this so far. So it's grossly inadequate uh, before you even start. Okay, we're running out of time. David, what do you think? Is this going to just be added to uh, the library of reports that have been ignored, or is this going to lead to something? Well, we hope so. I can tell you that at CARP, we are working on a presentation, an entire book. We're not just letting our petition be a number. We're going to be presenting to the Premier all the names that signed and a selection of over 2,000 comments we got. We're going to be sending it to every single member of Queen's Park, and we intend to make it a major issue at the next election. And I think we have to keep the pressure on to tell them this is not going to be forgotten, This is hot and heavy and current, and it better be fixed. Okay. That is all the time we have. This is an ongoing issue. I look forward to the day when things are fixed. If things are ever going to be fixed, we don't have to talk about it so often. In the meantime, thank you so much, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Okay. We are going to take a break. And when we return, uh, we are going to talk about vaccines and trying to tackle a question that a lot of people have. Can you change them up? Can you get a second dose with a vaccine that is different from your first vaccine, something that people are thinking about because of supply shortages? We'll have that when we return. And the numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As we have been reporting, a lot of people are very worried about the four-month interval between vaccine doses that has been mandated because of a lack of supply. Now, it is longer than any other interval in the world. And with shortages in some brands, but not others, it has scientists and the community wondering whether it's safe and effective to use vaccines interchangeably and give a second dose with a different vaccine than the patient received in the first instance. Studies are underway. Let me give you the numbers if you have questions. 416-360-0740, toll-free 
40. And right now I'd like to go to Dr. Brian Lichty, who is an associate professor of pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster University. Hi, Dr. Lichty. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? Not bad. Now, uh, what do we know so far on whether it's safe and effective to use the vaccines interchangeably? Well, um, with the existing vaccines, they are currently studying this, uh, and it's a little early to know. But what we do know is that for years now, um, immunologists have been studying what are called, what's called a heterologous prime boost, and that's where you use two versions of a vaccine, one after the other. And the science says that this is actually a very good way to generate um, an effective immune response when you're vaccinating. And there, um, prior to the pandemic, there were a number of vaccine programs that have probably been interrupted now that were showing very good evidence that this is an approach that, um, that works great um, in, in various settings against various um, infectious agents. So uh, the science says that this is probably a good way to go, in fact. Well, it's interesting. I know that when it comes, for instance, to chemotherapy, uh, drugs are often combined, and that often works better than going with a single drug. I don't know how analogous that is to a vaccine. Um, It's not a great analogy because the point... Uh, or the, the so the point of a vaccination, of course, is to induce an immune response against something, and that's different than most drug therapies. Um, the way to think about this is that the first time your body sees something it hasn't seen before, it takes a, a little while, you know, a couple weeks, ten days, for the immune response to to get going, and that's too slow if you're just being infected with, you know, the the COVID virus, the coronavirus, you get too sick before that happens. And a single vaccination, um, 14 days later, you've, you've got an immunity to the coronavirus that um, is actually quite effective. There's a lot of evidence now that, uh, especially from Britain, where they're, they're, they're well ahead of us in the vaccination programs, that, that one dose, the first dose, keeps people out of hospitals, um, which is the, the main goal of the vaccine campaign, we need to reduce the burden on our healthcare system. Um, but what that does is it shows one version, that version of um, the spike protein in this case, to the immune system, and it, the immune system responds based on how it's presented to them. And each of these vaccines does that slightly differently. So if you get, uh, say, the Pfizer vaccine, and then sometime later you get your second dose of the Pfizer vaccine, it's seeing the same thing twice, exactly the same thing, and it will mount, your immune system will, will mount a response based on what it's been shown each time, and that's great. If we change it up and you present the same thing but slightly differently by using one of the other technologies, um, the, the breadth of and the quality of the immune response may be different and could be improved and and in theory may be more likely to deal with these variants that are the big concern right now. So I think there's lots of reasons to change the technology. And the biggest changes between the mRNA vaccines like Pfizer or Moderna and the adenoviral vectored vaccines from AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson because we know historically that the adenoviral vaccines are very good at inducing what's called cellular immunity. Um, and by doing mRNA and the adenovirus, you may be able to get um, good antibodies, but also good T-cell responses. And that is a more natural immunity that may be more protective and more long-term. So uh, that was my uh, next question, that in theory, anyway, that mixing the vaccines could help people get better protected against the variants. There's that possibility. What we have seen is that people who were infected, but not, you know, not terribly sick, not hospitalized, who then get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So that's two exposures. It's one's the natural infection and one's the vaccine. 
they have um, much better immunity against the spike protein that's in the vaccine than people who have only had the vaccine, and that's because their body has seen it two different ways. So that's sort of a natural experiment for um, combining two different versions of the vaccine. Infection followed by vaccination generates a very effective immunity that um, is predicted, at least, to give better protection against variants. So when are you expecting to see uh, more results on this? Um, well, they're going as quickly as they can in, in England where they've started, or Britain where they've started um, these combination trials. So in, it'll take a few months to get the data, of course, because there's the time following the second vaccination to see the immune responses, but also to to see what degree of protection there is. And the, 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 the less coronavirus is circulating in the population, the harder it is to tell if you've protected people. So um, because they've done such a good job with vaccination, the numbers of infections are down in Britain. And that may make it a little harder to be sure that this will protect. But um, I'm sure other jurisdictions are going to roll out um, the heterologous approach and and find out how effective it is. Okay. Dr. Brian Lichty, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Have a good day. Okay. I'd like to bring in now Dr. Peter Uni. He is the scientific director of the province's COVID-19 science advisory table. Hi, Dr. Uni. Hi. Good afternoon. Uh, so we were just talking to Do- Dr. Brian Lichty, and uh, he seems to think it'll take longer than what I've re- what I've been reading to get some results about whether it's okay to switch up vaccines between the first and second dose. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. You know, the the point really is that antibodies, the antibody levels that we can measure, and the uh, the the cellular um, immune response that we can measure in the lab will give us a really good hunch about what's going on. So this is really probably most mostly about that part. These trials are not that large. That's not trials, you know, uh, for us to, you know, understand how the clinical protection is in terms of avoiding hospitalizations or ICU admissions or cases. They, these trials are mainly there to, uh, for us to understand how high the antibody levels are and how good the cellular response is. And I think we will be able to tell based on these trials actually what's going on, you know, I hope within, uh, you know, the next four to six weeks or so. So I'm still quite optimistic, actually. Now, can you please explain in layman's terms, we're hearing that that one type of vaccine, the mRNA messenger is really good with antibodies and another is is better with T cells. Can you explain that to non-scientists, please? Yes, um, I can try. Um, we have two types of, of immune responses that are both very important. And of course, also, you know, m- memory of immune, of, uh, of expositions, which are important. So one is indeed, um, the antibodies that, that basically are triggered by both types of vaccines, those that, that, um, are coming from AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson that are based on a viral vector and uh, the mRNA vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer. So antibodies are being generated as a result of the exposition to the spike protein. That's the protein that is uh, used by the virus to latch on two cells that gives the um, the virus this characteristic appearance. Therefore, it's called coronavirus. Um, now, what we know is that for the uh, vaccines from Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, the other type of response, which is, uh, which is going through cells that also have an important function, is um, most likely triggered considerably stronger through, uh, just with uh, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. And what now could well happen is that um, if all goes well, that the combination actually of uh, Johnson Johnson or AstraZeneca first and an mRNA vaccine from Moderna and Pfizer second could be the perfect mix. Why? It's not exactly the same um, 
a part of the of the uh, spike protein that that we are exposed by when we're getting vaccinated with the different different types of vaccines. And in addition, we would have this potential combination of optimal response, you know, from a from a cellular perspective, the T cells, and optimal response from an antibody uh, perspective. That's the that uh, what is perhaps triggered more through modern Pfizer. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are the potential dangers of mixing that uh, researchers are looking at? I think right now this is mostly about um, effectiveness. I can't see um, that there would be potential dangers just in that. The point uh, would be that, you know, right now the uh, colleagues who are a bit more um, conservative would say the trials are done with a specific schedule of vaccines and it's always the same type of vaccine and therefore we cannot be sure that if we start to mix vaccines we still have the same protection. So this is coming more from that part and therefore to have the trials that actually measure antibody levels and measure T cell response, the cellular response, is just the absolutely right thing to do. This will give us a, a lot more um, of of, uh, of security that we're doing the right thing. A priori, I can't see any dangers of uh, of mixing these vaccines in terms of safety. What about there are a lot of people. I'm hearing from a lot of people who are very concerned about this four-month interval that we are stuck with, at at least at the moment. What are your views on that? Look, we need right now to do the right thing for the entire population of Ontario. And the right thing is to have as many people as possible protected by approximately 50 to 70% against severe disease, but also have them protected. We see that now increasingly that this is the case against transmitting the virus by 50 to 70 percent. To bring this up then higher to uh, to 90 percent or so, that's the function of the second dose, actually. So right now, if we just apply for, for the vast majority of people just first doses, that's the best bet for everybody because this also now starts to help also getting the pandemic under control. And once numbers you know, plummets more than as well. We also will will start to be in a position once we reach perhaps seventy percent of the population that uh, was uh, was vaccinated. Then, then uh, we uh, start to wor- work with the second doses. What is important is, you know, in all of this, we cannot let go of the public health measures anyway. Right now, that's important. And then the other part will be that we look very carefully into who should get the second dose first. You know, there are, again, people who are at highest risk. For instance, people who just recently have had cancer, especially blood cancer, they are at very high risk to experience complications. And people who have, an, you know, a, a, an immune system that is suppressed. And again, people who are in real high-risk situations. So our frontline healthcare workers will be much more important to get, you know, a second dose before, you know, people like you or me who can stay home and they work from home and don't have much I can't exposition. work from home. Uh, what about older people? Uh, what The first thing was that the biggest risk was age. I didn't hear you include older people in there. I, I, to be honest, I, I was about to say that as well. Those the, the Age is another one that is important if we talk especially about people above the age of 80. So it will depend there again, you know, on whether they are able to, uh, you know, stay at home and not expose themselves, that plays a role. We know that elderly people also have a, you know, a somewhat less pronounced immune response. So 80 plus then comes first and then 75 plus. It's, it's a similar sermon as before, but what we need to make sure is that we really get it right, especially with the very high risk groups. That's what we did, for instance, you know, with the long-term care homes. Most of residents in long-term care homes have been vaccinated twice, plus the groups that I was referring to, and then the 80 pluses. Okay. Dr. Peter Uni, thank you so much.
Thanks for having me. Okay. Um, I, I was looking at the board. Uh, Walter in Hamilton, his question was the subject of this. So, uh, Walter, I'm not going to take your call because hopefully you were listening and got the answer. What would happen if I used a different vaccine? Well, you won't be able to use it unless it's cleared and, and those trials are underway. And both the doctors that we just talked to think that it will probably turn out to be better to use two different vaccines. Dr. Peter Uni, the head of the science table, doesn't think there's any danger in doing that. But the bottom line is that we won't really know for another little while. Right now, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will be talking to Mayor Bonnie Crombie of Mississauga. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As of today, it's a lot easier for adults in the so-called hotspots to book vaccine appointments. Anyone 18 and over in those areas can now make an appointment through the provincial booking system. There are also some pharmacies in those areas piloting the use of the Pfizer vaccine in drugstores. So I'm checking in with Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie to see if these developments have addressed her concerns about the vaccine rollout in her area, given that it is home to some of the hardest hit neighborhoods. Mayor Crombie, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me today. You have great questions. Where do you want to start? I want to start. So we've seen a number of measures, even uh, here in our newsroom. Most most of us are older, except for our producer, Zeve, and uh, he just got online and got an appointment. It's, uh, you know, not for another three weeks or so, but uh, he'll be the last person in here getting his uh, first shot. So <laughs> Right. So true enough, right? So now we have additional vaccine and we're very grateful for that. At least for the next two weeks, the hot zones are getting, are receiving 50% of the vaccine across the province. And that's so important. But we are hearing that there are people, over 200 people a minute trying to book and over 20,000 appointments being booked daily. So, uh, you know, it will be a few weeks. We're just asking people to be patient because now we are opening it up for everyone. It's 55 plus in Peel, 18 plus today in hot spots, moving to 50 plus by Thursday and 18 plus in hot spots and 45 plus in pharmacies. But I'm hearing some of the pharmacies aren't being too particular your age category. I will say the only concern I have, and, and you know, it's we've been saying this from the beginning, uh, we have a number of workplace outbreaks amongst our essential workers, and we've been advocating for vaccine in those large manufacturing, food processing, warehousing plants where you know, it, this virus, it's kind of a chicken egg. Does it start there? Does it circulate there? It goes back to um, the, the, the household and then into the community. So it's so important we, that we address essential workers. And, you know, there are number, we've been saying this for months, that and paid sick days. We need to get the essential workers vaccinated. So um, I will say that the mass vaccination sites are very efficient. Ours here in Mississauga, we're vaccinating 15,000 people per day, wow. uh, over 100,000 uh, per week. Yeah, very, very good. And uh, we have had a, a couple of pop-up clinics, and there will be others. And and really, the pop-ups here in Peel, Mississauga, are for marginalized groups that were otherwise reluctant or wouldn't go to a mass vaccination site for, for a number of reasons. They just feel safer in their own with their own community. Uh, so we have had a couple of those, and there are a few more planned. But honestly, the best, fastest way is to go online or to call, make your appointment, and get into one of our five uh, mass vaccination so- centers, because we have five here. Bottom line, uh, you feel like uh, it's under control and, and you're getting what you need at this point? Well, certainly, as long as the supply of vaccine is consistent and steady and stable. It's great for the next two weeks, and then I start to worry if it, uh, if it tapers down again. So right now, things are good. Uh, I'm so glad the age groups, age categories have been opened up because, of course, everybody wants the vaccine. And by the end of the month, everyone will be, will be eligible. In uh, Mississauga, as you know, Peel is pretty much all of us is a hot spot, and all of three or four 
uh, of our postal codes. Actually, the word is 25 out of 33 postal codes in Peel are hot spots. All of Brampton is not. There's one in Caledon that isn't, and seven or six or seven in Mississauga. But of those, seven of the eight of those postal codes in Mississauga that are not a hot spot have higher case counts and hospitalization rates than others that are identified as hotspots in other regions of the province. So very interesting. So we've been asking as well that all of Mississauga be a hotspot. But you know what, Libby, the bottom line is as long as the supply of vaccine is consistent and it keeps coming in uh, and we keep vaccinating people, that'll get us, get us through this as, uh, faster than ever. And then the rest of the province can get back to normal. Because let's be honest, life can't get back to normal in those areas, uh, you know, like Kingston and, and Ottawa and, and Cornwall and, and Windsor and Essex and in the north as well, until the hotspots uh, with the viruses controlled in the hotspots because it continues to spread. Uh, Mayor Crombie, you are on record. You asked the province to reverse some of the restrictions on outdoor activities, notably golf and tennis. There are huge petitions of people asking to do that. Uh, There were some reports that they were going to do that. So far, nothing's happened. What have you heard about that? So what I know is, you know, I base my decisions on the advice of the science table, and the science table has suggested that the risk of transmission in outdoor activities is very low. And as the the weather is warming up, people do want to be outdoors. We do encourage them to be outdoors. And yes, you mentioned the golf and the tennis, but what about basketball and soccer and baseball, outdoor fitness, all of that? All of that is relatively safe. The only one that gives me a little bit of indigestion and angst is the uh, basketball courts because, of course, they draw, you know, numerous kids to come out, and we don't want that. We just want, you know, play with your brother or sister uh, is fine, but not, not we don't want uh, groups of youth to gather. Um, so it is safer, but I think the province feels that in a, a stay-home lockdown, it sends the wrong message to start reopening things. I think they're waiting to see... Uh, a downturn. So what I'm seeing is that case counts are increasing, but uh, but at a smaller rate. So we're we haven't we're we're peaking, but we're not on the downward decline yet. And I think that will happen very soon. And I think once they see that, and they're get they'll have a little le- greater level of comfort about opening up some more of those outdoor activities, which we know are safe. Uh, and it is frustrating for people because, of course, we do need to get outside here in Peel and in Toronto. And you know yourself, Libby, we've been in lockdown than ev- any other region in North America yep. since November 23rd. Uh, so people do look for outdoor activities to go out and, and uh, that are safe. And we know that the risk of transmission outdoors is a lot smaller. So um, I think they're just waiting to see the downward trend begin and then they'll start to open them. Okay, 20 seconds left. What would you like to leave us with? You know, we're not out of the woods yet. Please register for your vaccine right now. I think everyone's interested. Be patient. Stay on the line or or book online. Uh, so we have five mass vaccination sites here in Peel. Look for, or in Mississauga, rather, there are 11 in Peel. Look for the pop-up clinics. Get vaccinated. But still, please, please practice public health protocols. It's still very important because the new variants are so transmissible. So stay away from people, a minimum six feet, two meters, and wash your hands often and wear your mask. Okay. That is all the time we have. Mayor Bonnie Crombie, thank you so much for being with us. for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And again, that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.